Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Crime and Investigation podcast. My name is Martin Hines and this time around we are joined by investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas. Throughout his career, Mark has sought to be at the forefront of many crime stories, including the cases of Jimmy Savile and Oscar Pistorius. You can see Mark in the opening episode of Britain's Darkest Taboo Series 6 and I'm delighted to welcome him to the Crime and Investigation podcast. Hello Mark, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. So it's a delight to have you on. Obviously, we're going to see you on Britain's Darkest Taboos, the, the start of the new series. How did you get involved in the show? So I've done some work previously with the editor of the show, and he said to me, look, do you have a space in your diary to be able to to come and uh, front this and, and be involved in it? And, and I said, actually, as it happens, I have. I was between two projects. I've just started another project now. And I said, listen, yeah, I'd be very keen to be involved. How was your experience with him working in the show? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I know Emma. I know David, you know, I've got huge respect for both of those. And, and of course, becoming involved in a show like this, which has done very well, it's got good reputation, it covers really important stories, and it gave me the opportunity really to try and draw out from both of those the key elements that they wanted to talk about, but also which are really important for the public. And the public you know, have a fascination with crime, that crime genre. It both sells, but also educates, and and all ages are fascinated. You know, from young people all the way up to you know, the OAPs. And I think as a result of that, when you get into the nitty gritty, some of the minutiae of crimes, it is fascinating. You can listen to Emma Kenny on, on our podcast as well. And she was speaking about you and how you two have fairly differing opinions. And it's interesting you reflect on the public interest in crime. It's such an emotive subject and everyone, everyone has their own agendas. How hard is it for you from your background, both detective and, and journalist, for you to look at both sides of the story? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly unique in my role in so much as, obviously, I am a former detective. So I've investigated major crimes from murders down to you know, some of the most simple cases. But I'm now, you know, turned poacher. I'm over the other side. And so my relationship now with the police is one of knowledge, because I know how they operate, but also one of informed media. Uh, and obviously, I'm trying to get the hold of the story, the information to be able to put it out there in a concise and, and understanding way. And I think sometimes there is that challenge. There's the challenge because the police naturally are quite suspicious of the media. 
and sometimes they're very reluctant to give over information. Uh, but I do think my ability as a former detective enables me to understand and therefore they feel that there is more of a, a connect that takes place. And, you know, and I've had incredible success in some of the stories and the programmes that I've covered and I've had access to some incredible cases. And, and I think some of that, you know, I'm a great believer that you create your own luck. Yes, some of that luck is there, of course it is, but you do create your own luck and it's how you put yourself in those positions you listen nothing comes easy everything everything that's hard is hard for a reason you have to work hard at it but if you put the hours in you put the contacts in you work hard you you will create some luck and when you create that luck opportunities happen you've certainly put the hours in let's go back to the beginning of your story why detective why did you choose to become involved within the police and solving crime and indeed stopping crime at the very root of it yeah I mean I, I, I'm a very active person so when I left school I had the option to go and play rugby semi-professionally in New Zealand and I dis- and at the same time I applied to join the police and I got accepted by the police and I thought you know, do I go and play rugby or do I join the police and actually earn some money and I joined the police and there really started my career the opportunity to help people I joined the police service for one simple reason and that was to help people and catch the baddies and I still maintain that stance now it is about helping people it's about detecting crime and what I've used my skills in my current work as an investigative reporter is all based on my skills as a detective so it's about working with people but I think there's some fundamental things that sit alongside that you've got to have trust Mm -hmm. trust is what's earned and built you've got to have honesty you've got to be honest with the people you're talking to and you've got to be straight and and it's about having that respect. And if you deal with all of those elements, you'll find that those people that I work with, I take real care in everyone I work with. I take great care that they are understanding what's taking place, but also they're getting the best out of it. Because, you know, when it goes wrong in the media, it goes seriously wrong. You've built up an amazing career, but has there ever been a time when you just thought... I wish I was throwing a ball around in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, yeah, quite a lot. Actually, I still have that feeling now. I mean, you know, sometimes I think to myself, do you know, why don't I just do a nine-to-five job? It's nice and easy. It's nice and simple. But I tell you what, I'd be bored in a couple of... I'd be bored in a day, probably shorter than that. I love what I do. You know, I juggle so many balls at the same time. I juggle lots of projects. Uh, you know, whilst I'm making a, a complicated series now, I'm also working on two other cases. So there is that constant work the whole time. You know, my children say to me, you'll never stop working. You're a complete workaholic. And, I, you know, I, I struggle sometimes. I think we all struggle to be able to get that balance right, the balance between working and family life. And that's a difficult balance. Uh, but I'm passionate about what I do. Every day I wake up and I'm passionate about either working on the project I'm doing and developing it further or developing new projects. It's all about giving people a voice and giving shining the light in the darkest of corners. How hard is it for you that... A lot of your work is in the public eye. Is it, is it to make it more difficult to separate the personal from the public in that regard? I think sometimes. I mean, obviously, my profile's grown since Savile and, uh, you know, and I now, you know, present a, a primetime TV show, which has you know, around four million viewers. And I think, therefore, sometimes in a way it helps. It helps because when I talk to people, they know of me. And it, get, it creates that opportunity to gain access perhaps where I wouldn't have done. It also presents sometimes a bit of a block because I'll talk to people and they might be reluctant to open up 
particularly authorities, because they think, actually, if I open up to you or if I give you an interview, you're going to have a go at me or you're going to you know, accuse me of something. And I think that's difficult sometimes. So it, it, whilst it can work in a favour, it can also work against you. But, you know, I think I'm pretty straight. You know, there isn't what you see is what you get. And I'll, you know, I'll call a spade a spade. Yeah, you've worked on so many high-profile cases. We have to touch on a few of them. Jimmy Savile, yeah. we're half a decade on now for, from the unravelling of, of his life. What is the legacy now of your kind of whistleblowing, of your investigation? You know, five years on, how do you reflect on it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's very few stories, cases that a journalist will cover that has such a a massive impact, and not just impact in terms of the media, but an impact on changing people's attitudes and life. And, you know, I was a vehicle for that. I had five incredibly strong women who allowed me to tell their story, had confidence in me, and that's what I did. I told it in a very simplistic way, but a very palatable and understandable way. And it has obviously led on to huge, huge positive attitudes in terms of policing, in terms of prosecutions, but has also significantly led to the arrest of many, many other suspects, not just high-profile ones that we all know about, Rolf Harris, Max Clifford, Stuart Hall, but also the hundreds of offenders up and down this country that don't make the headlines, that as a direct result of the power that people, victims had as a result of the programme, have had the confidence to come forward. So it has created, I think, a legacy. I think it's created a sea change in attitudes. And I think when we look back on this in probably 10, 15 years' time, we'll refer to it as being the Savile effect. After your story came out, for 41 days afterwards, it was on the front pages of newspapers. But since then, what we found is a lot of archive footage that's come out of Jimmy Savile doing various things, or, or even more pertinently, this TV incidences where people are talking about Jimmy Savile covertly hinting towards yeah. what, would you, what do you think about that in terms of why was this ignored obviously it's a big case why it was ignored for so long but how do you feel that all this stuff is coming out now rather than, than previously yeah I mean I think you know I knew nothing about Savile at the time the first I knew about it was just prior to actually his death and then making the programme uh, offenders give off signs. Those signs are there, and children are very good at picking up those signs. Of course, some children can't do anything about it because they become subject to abuse because of either their vulnerability or their position. An offender needs access to their victim and the opportunity to offend. Opportunity, no CCTV, nobody else around. And so both of those elements need to be fulfilled. And of course, in regards to Savile, both of those were in abundance. He had lots of access to children and he had lots of opportunity. Now, that opportunity was afforded to him because of his power as well. It was increased. This was a man who became almost untouchable. He became untouchable to a point of view that it was very difficult for anybody to challenge and be believed. And so I get it in terms of some individuals, those victims, those people who were in a job that no one would listen to them, even if they were going to challenge. What I don't accept and what is what is wrong is, of course, those people who were in positions of power, those who were uh, aware of allegations being made, in particular in relation to his work perhaps at the BBC. And we have a BBC report, James Dannett's Janet Smith's report, which on one level says there were senior managers at 
the radio station, particularly who'd been made aware of concerns. And then further goes on and says, but actually no senior manager is responsible for not taking any actions. Well, those are, are contrary to each other. They don't sit alongside each other. So actually, the bottom line is there were people in media in the many circles that Savile worked, who had knowledge and who could have stopped it. And I, and I say this very clearly, those people have to live with that, and I hope that they live with it with some torment. You said a couple of years ago that if Jimmy Savile was still alive today, this news still wouldn't have come out. Do you still believe that now, the, a few years after that? It's impos- it was impossible to do a story on Jimmy Savile whilst he was still alive. He was such a powerful man. And there are a number of other individuals who still live now, um, of whom I'm convinced that there are offences against them, or they've committed offences, uh, and they are still too powerful for the full story to come out. There are stories about them in the public domain, but the full story hasn't. We live in a very litigious society. There are individuals who are very powerful through money, Uh, who will sue, and they will sue to a considerable degree. If Savile had been alive and these allegations had come out, he would have sued. The broadcasters would never have broadcasted it in the first place, but even if someone had written about it, he would have sued them. It would never have got off the ground, and the broadcasters would not have broadcast a programme about him whilst he was alive. Do you think it's possible that for something like that to happen again, for a celebrity to become so ingrained in not just society but in government and other things that the secrets, they'll just stay forever. Uh, Society has changed. Uh, Attitudes have changed. And don't forget, social media makes a big difference now. You know, now people post things online anonymously. So there is information out there. In those days, they didn't. So the avenues weren't open to them like they are now. So information now will be circulated far quicker and to a wider audience when there are concerns about people's behaviour. So it would be wrong to say there aren't people who are offending to a degree similar to Savile because there are. But the power control element of those individuals is far less likely because there is more likelihood that individual would be exposed in some degree through social media. And I think we have we have one of the best press in the world. We have a press which isn't uh, controlled by uh, government. It is independent. And there are some very good journalists out there who would pick up on that and who would look to dig further and further. Another famous case you worked on was Oscar Pistorius, a South African Olympic hero who killed his girlfriend, uh, Reva Steenkamp, a couple of years ago. You were the sole journalist to meet Oscar during his trial. I mean, how was that? Considering his level of fame, what went on? Yeah, Oscar is it's an incredibly sensitive situation. When, when Oscar killed Reva on Valentine's Day... I immediately after that, I or very soon after that, I made contact through the family, uh, through to Oscar, to actually get to a position to uh, talk to him. And he was being kept away from all the media. We then fast forward to the position just prior to his trial. And in fact, I flew over uh, to sign an agreement to actually do the interview or get access to him prior to the trial. That wasn't agreed. It wasn't agreed because, and I understand why, the lawyers wanted to keep everything controlled for the trial and allow all the information to come out at trial. And that was fine. The problem is, of course, is that prior to trial, the trial in a degree had already taken place because the South African media and the British media and the American media and all the media out there were running stories that were out there that had been put in there or had been picked up and placed in a in a prosecution manner. 
Uh, and the defence didn't respond to any of that. And the problem with anything is if you don't challenge or respond to evidence once it's put out there, if it's incorrect, it almost becomes fact and, and sits there, even if you challenge it some two, three years later. And that's the position they've got to. So when we did finally, so obviously the, the trial occurs and... Um, uh, the outcome is as it is. There's then a retrial position. And it was at that point that I made, or I was approached again by the family and said, look, you know, I think we're, we need to do something now. And then I spent time with Oscar. And I didn't know Oscar before the trial. And Oscar was a very different person when I got to know him. Um, but I think deep down it was the same Oscar. It was just an Oscar that was a very, it was in a very different position. He, he wasn't. He was the most one of the most powerful people in South Africa. There was Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and Oscar Pistorius. Yeah, a, a very different character, a very different person. But I have to say. Uh, and I've been very clear about this, is that I still maintain that Oscar did not on that night intend to kill Reva. It was a most tragic and horrible event that took place. And let's be very clear that if South Africa's firearms laws were not as they were, he wouldn't have had access to a gun and she wouldn't now be dead. And the evidence is there to show, I believe, that there was no argument that night. There's no evidence to support that there was an argument that night. Uh, and there are questions. The problem is, is we try to apply, and this, is, this goes to all crime, we try to apply a logical response at a point of illogical response. In other words, when you're under stress and you panic, we try to think after the event and say, well, how would I have occurred? Well, you don't know how you would have occurred because you're not under that stress and and situation as it is. Adrenaline kicks in, response kicks in, previous experience kicks in, personal fear kicks in. And all of those, when you put those all in, your response may be considerably different. And even if you're faced by the same scenario, if I and you were faced by the same scenario, your response might be considerably different to my response. And therefore, if we tried to apply a logical response to that, it wouldn't necessarily be the response of the individual. And I think we have to take massively into consideration the danger in South Africa. It's one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And South Africa is, you know, he was subject to... Uh, his family had been subject to break-ins in the past. They'd been subject to firearms offences in the past when they'd broken into a house and, and pulled a gun. So when you put that into context, it is dangerous. When we filmed over that, I had a 24-hour armed security with me whilst we were in South Africa. When you shake his hand and you see him and you know he's perhaps guilty of something, but maybe not the crime that people think he is, what goes through your mind? Like, Do you have to deal with the man or, or the incident, or do you have to try and do both? No, you deal with the situation. So you're, you are there to do a job, and I was there to do a job which was to get Oscar's side, understand how we could put that into a context where the public could understand it, and give him his voice so he could be heard, and let the public make up their mind whether they agreed or believed whatever he was saying. Um, there are some people I meet who, who I hate, who I can't stand because they've committed the most serious crime. But they won't know that. 
because I will deal with them in the same manner as I deal with anybody else. And as people often say to me, I've dealt with, I've interviewed some really nasty, horrible people, you know, particularly child sex offenders, one of the most emotive subjects. And people will say to me, how do you not lose control when you talk to these people? And my simple response is, how does that help anybody? It's not going to help me getting any answers from them. You know, I'll be your friend if I have to, if you will tell me what you've done, which will enable me to get closure for the victim and to put that person in jail. Well, that leads us to Stuart Hazel, who killed schoolgirl Tia Sharp. You interviewed him Mm. while, before his guilt was found, before he was even arrested, I believe. And you've said since that you knew when he was doing this interview, this is a very famous interview, it's been shared all over the world on a different, lot of different channels, that you knew, looking into his eyes, that he was guilty. And you were kind of waiting for him to show something to signify that. How do you walk into a room with a man who protests innocence and by all accounts, you know, is a an emotional person at that time. What goes through your mind when you're about to talk? So if you backtrack, and the point that I knew he was guilty, I, had nothing, I hadn't even met him at that stage. Oh. I knew that he was guilty because the evidence was overwhelming that says there was nobody else that it could possibly be. So in those first few days when I gained access to the family and I spoke to the family, it was quite clear that there was nobody else that it could possibly be. He was the last person to see her. The circumstances in which she went missing didn't add up. The fact she didn't take her phone, the time of day that, that the allegation was taking place and for her to simply vanish. This was a young girl who was very much a homely girl, you know, loved grandmother, spent a lot of time with grandmother between the two locations. She wasn't someone that would vanish and disappear. She hadn't gone missing previously. So when you put that all into the mix, it was very clear. And when I spoke to the editor and said, look, let's do, I I think I've got this interview with them. Let's do this interview. And I said, you know, this is an interview with a killer. And I remember her saying to me, how do you know that? And I said, because it is. It can, can, there can be nobody else that is, is, that's responsible for this. And she said to me, do, you know, other, do the police believe that as well? I said, I don't know what the police believe, but they clearly aren't going down that route at the moment because there are no police officers at the house and there is no intrusive surveillance, i.e. bugs being placed in the house. So you know, when you look at all of that, you think, hang on a minute. Then when I did interview him... I I wanted him. He said to me on the eve of the interview, so, uh, sorry, he said to me just before the interview, will you give me five or six questions so that I can prepare? And I said, that's not how I work. No, I won't. I said, it's a free-flowing interview. I said, I'll ask you a number of questions. I might need to explore some things just to get further details. It'll be very relaxed. It'll be very calm. And, you know, and I'll talk you through it. He was happy with that. He gave me his account. I then brought the crews in. And one of the things I said to the crew is leave the cameras running the whole time. So whatever happens, we record everything whilst we're in this house. And I knew that the evidence that I would obtain during the course of that interview would subsequently be used in a criminal conviction because I had no doubt at that stage that Tia Tia Sharp had been murdered by him. I didn't know how. I didn't know where her body was. And in fact, there is... You know, I was in that house and Tia was upstairs. When I go to people's houses, you know, and and this is probably not a good thing to say because if I, when I go to people's houses, I'm incredibly nosy. So if I went to your house and I went to the bathroom, I'd know what you have in your bathroom. And I might even, as I disappear downstairs, have a good poke around. Not intrusively, but I'm nosy. And, um, And therefore, as a result of that, I did say to them, can I go upstairs and have a look at Tia's room? On the first day I went into the house and they said, well, we'd rather you didn't. And I respected that and I didn't. She'd obviously was in a loft the whole time. The police incompetence in terms of searching. Four times, right, they said? Yeah, I mean, they couldn't find the body and the body was literally 
placed, tucked in an eave, which where actually lifted one side, her hand dropped out, and you, as from the loft, you could actually reach her body. Um, had I got up into the uh, upstairs, would I have smelt the body? I don't know. My smelling is poor, is terrible. Um, would I have smelt it? I don't know. But I can tell you, death has a unique smell to it. And I've been to many post-mortems, and it is a unique smell. So had I been up there and had the uh, prevailing wind been in such a way that I would have, or air been in such a way I would have smelt it, I don't know, I might have done. But I didn't get that position. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Of all these people you've met, all these criminals, all these stories, these these sad situations, is there one in particular that sticks in your mind? Because I was doing a lot of work in Cambodia, yeah. uh, and Cambodia today, far away from the, the time of the 70s, is now almost seen as this paradise, this tourist paradise. A lot of young travellers go through there en route to other places. It's People are almost forgetting the sins of the past. How was Cambodia? Yeah, no, Cambodia was, uh, it's probably one of the worst, the saddest times I had. I mean, I, I, I went to, I've been helping a family, uh, Sarah Groves was murdered in Kashmir on a houseboat, stabbed 41 times. And I went over there and did a report for them. And in fact, during the course of that, I'm the only person that's spoken to the man, the Dutchman, uh, who has been accused of her murder. I got an interview with him, with the guards and everyone around there. We did it secret filming. And I got an interview with him and he denied having been involved in the murder. I have no doubt he was involved in the murder, but an incredibly sad case. And sadly, because of the judicial system in India, years on, we still aren't any further forward. That was 2013. Cambodia was... I went over there to expose the trafficking of children, the abuse of children, and I went undercover as a paedophile. And I ended up meeting a paedophile and a guy who and another guy who was prepared to sell me two young girls. And actually, there was a really difficult moment because what we ended up doing is that on the I think it was about the third night is we'd met up with this paedophile. Uh, and he took us to a location where he said there were some young girls that we could have sex with. We got to this location and the girls were probably 15, 16, 17. And I said to them, and we were, we were taken to this, we were in a tuk-tuk, taken to this location, really vulnerable. Actually, our support crew got lost. So they missed they, they missed the turn the tuk-tuk left. So we were totally on our own. And when you're on your own, it's it's, it's basically all in. You know, I said to my cameraman, we were secretly filming. I said to my cameraman, if you're if you're out, I'm out. If I'm out, you're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whoever goes goes, right? And we support each other. 
So anyway, I was in there and uh, and I said, look, these girls aren't young enough. And he said, oh, no, 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 you, you, they'll be fine. I said, no, 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 I need younger. Anyway, and they went, oh, OK, come out with me. So we walked out to Tuk Tuk and then he said to me, I'll take you to where the young girls are. So we rode away and then we drove, we rode down this road and this motorbike pulled up alongside and this young man on this motorbike said, I can find you younger girls, age 10, 8, 9, 10. And, and then over a period of time, it was, he then said, sorry, that evening, he then said, and I'll meet you an hour and a half at the seafront and I'll bring the girls to you. And we went to the seafront and it was a split session, second decision we had to make. Either we were going to be landed with two young girls, nine and ten year old, or we had to call it off. And clearly we couldn't take two nine and ten. We'd have blown our cover completely. Uh, we wouldn't have caught the offender necessarily. So we went to the cafe and I called him up and said, look, it's off. I, I, I can't do it. I'm a bit worried. I've been worried. There's police around here. I'll get caught. Anyway, he came in a long chat with us and said, look, you know, we'll arrange it for another day. I then continued telephone conversation with him and it resulted in him offering to bring a number of girls again. And I said, listen, right, let me have a think about it. And the last day of we were there, we'd been told whilst we were there that it was a criminal offence to investigate whilst you're there the police will prosecute you and I'd managed to get hold of a former intelligence officer from the Australian uh, uh, Secret Service who was a contact I had and he met with me and he said listen given what you've established I will create a, a contact for you with a colonel in the Cambodian Army and police he'll come and see you anyway he came to see me with his five entourage and actually when we knew he was coming in the morning, we made condition. We made uh, we split up the document. We split up the evidence we had, and I let everybody go. So nobody was there. So if I got arrested, the rest of the crew were off. Anyway, he came in. He was very pleasant. He took our evidence from us, and the result is is that within I think it's about a month, they set up a sting. First sting they'd ever done. They'd never wow. done a sting before. We gave them our phone and all our contacts. They arrested two men and they rescued two young girls. So we got two traffickers out of it. So really good result. But you know that's what it's about. And and it was, you know, I went. I've never seen such poverty. I've never seen such child abuse to such a degree. They are a commodity. They're a commodity for for pence that get sold over there. And the amount of Brits that will travel, Westerners that will travel abroad, Thailand, Cambodia, Burma, other countries like that to commit offences are horrific. And I, I have to say, I, the British government still needs to do much more. If you are a sex offender and you've committed a sex offence in this country, I'm sorry, you don't get a passport. You do not get the opportunity to travel to other countries. Why are we allowing that? Why are we allowing offenders to go to a place where we know policing is much, much poorer, where we know they can buy their way out? Not acceptable. Take their passport, say, for them. You have, you've committed your offence. You've abused children. I'm sorry, you've lost certain liberties. And one of those is your passport. You report on so many different emotive issues and everyone has opinions on these sort of things. What are the biggest misconceptions about you and your profession that, that people tend to have? Um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can answer the first one. I don't know what people's misconceptions of me are. I mean, I'd like to think I'm quite transparent and quite clear. You know, I'm very vocal. I have very strong views. Uh, I'm not always right. You know, I'm I'm a very clear. You know, I'll put a view out there, and if someone comes along and shows me evidence that's wrong, I'll 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 go say 
brilliant, great, I'm wrong. Let's look at it like this. So I'm always very, very aware that I'm evidence-led. And if somebody comes along and challenges it and challenges it with strong evidence, then I'll reconsider that. Um, I think there is a... I think policing has changed and journalism has changed so much. I think the problem we've got now is that there are there are not that many uh, investigative journalists out there left. And some of the well, majority of that reason is because the finances and the resources within the media structure don't exist to enable that to happen. And it's about grounding. You know, I learned my tradecraft through being a policeman, through them working up and becoming a journalist and, and now doing the job that I do. But for many people, there isn't that grounding to happen. You know, you can't suddenly start investigating crimes or, or offences without that grounding in the background. And I think, therefore, my uniqueness and the role that I do enables me to gain the access that I do. And I, you know, I love what I do. I'm passionate. I'm very fortunate to be in the role that I am. And that's why I speak when I speak. I speak with great, uh, I hope, clarity and clearness so that the message that I'm trying to get across is a simple and clear one uh, to help those people. There are people out there, there are thousands of people out there who have been failed by authority in whatever way the authorities have let them down. What I hope to do in some way, and I can't take on all the cases, I can't, but what I can try to do is help and assist those people. And like Tia Sharp, you know, there was a lot of criticism that were applied to the mum and the gran, you know, and I got very close to them and I, I made a programme about them and I was the only person to gain access to them and obviously Stuart Hazel. And I'd like to think off the back of that, their view of the, the media and the press is a very different one than the negativity that sadly so many people have. Just a couple more questions. Firstly, your ITV show, uh, approaching a second series uh, yeah. for now. Tell us a little bit about that and also... The production company, Simon Cowell, involved yeah, yeah. in it. Do you feel like this is an indication of how much the public are interested in crime now that that such a big name is producing content of this nature? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, The Investigator, I've been making programmes for this for a long time. What The Investigator is different is that we are do producing on a far larger budget, of course. We're producing it in a fashion where we're using current affairs and drama, uh, trying to sync them together so that there is no... Yeah, no confusion in terms of what's happened. We're trying to bring individuals alive, and, and of course they're dead. That's a very difficult thing to do, and I think it worked. You know, we had huge coverage. It, the the press was positive. I think we we slightly oversold the end to again because it was a live investigation. We hoped that we were going to. You know, it, with a slight changes in terms of how people responded. We may have found Carol. It Literally, when we set out, we set out thinking we may find Carol and we may get to the bottom of this entirely. We, met, we made huge progress. We found some significant evidence that was being put to the police. But ultimately, yeah, there was a frustration. We weren't able to give Sam all the, the answers that she wanted and she needed to have. The second series, we're now investigating uh, a number of murders and doing the very similar work again. We are very focused in terms of where we're setting to achieve, but let's not let's be very clear to people is that we're making real television about real cases in real time. It's not a drama, it's not scripted, so I can't tell you what the outcome will be particularly in relation to series 2. I have no idea where we're going to be. I know what I want to get to. But I don't know if I'll get there. What I will do is I will shine light on some of the some horrible, sad cases 
I will uncover new evidence and I will give a voice to those people and I will challenge a lot of things. Um, and Simon, I mean, Simon is, in, you know, I have a very good relationship with Simon. We talk very regularly. He's an incredibly powerful but incredibly humble and a normal person. And he has, his desire is to help people. And I think in a way there is a synergy between what he does on X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and, and the investigator. He tries to give people opportunity in X Factor and, and Britain's Got Talent. And, and whereas I will try to help people in a very similar way. He's fascinated by crime. He's been passionate about crime for a very long time. And I think his what he brings to the investigator is a public kind of like punter's view. He also brings obviously lots of thoughts in terms of how stylistically a program can be made and I think his relationship with me in that manner works really well and I remember when we pitched series one to Peter Fincham uh, and I, we were sat at Simon's house and uh, Peter came in and, and Peter was sat to one side and Simon were Simon and I were alongside each other and I remember Peter saying he said you know this is the most unlikely yeah. and Peter at the time was director of television at ITV Peter said this is the most unlikely relationship I've got Mark Williams Thomas and I've got Simon Cal and they're both pitching the same story he said but because you're so different it kind of works and I think we've got a very honest relationship with each other and I have to say you know I have I've got a huge respect for Simon I think he's an incredibly uh, incredibly down to earth it's very difficult sometimes I, I know a lot of very famous people and you know I have to say overwhelmingly those people they're like you and I you know they are very normal there's some out there that you know I, I wouldn't have anything to do with and, and they are you know they're so far up themselves. But no, Simon's not. Simon's such a normal, normal person. And the relationship we have, you know, will develop and, and will go further. And I think well, there are there are other things in the pipeline. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to Britain's Darkest Taboos, of course, which returns with you in episode one. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, thank you. If people want to get in contact with you, say hello. What's the best way? Social yeah, media? Social media. I've got a presence on Twitter, so it's M. Williams Thomas. And, you know, I engage with people as, as many. If you're rude to me, I'll block you. But if you want to engage with me and talk to me, absolutely. I try and talk to as many people as possible. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can see Britain's Darkest Taboos Sunday nights on Crime Investigation at 9pm or catch up on demand and thank you to everybody for listening to the show today if you like what you heard get in touch we are on facebook ciuk there or at ci on twitter get involved share your views and we'll do our best to reply but for now the crime investigation podcast is over until next time stay curious Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.